This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine. It is October 2020. We are getting ready for Halloween, and we have a really scary issue for you this month. How you doing, Ryan? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's frightening. Um, yeah, things are going great down here uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, it's a beautiful spring day. Yeah, I hear your, your, um, your fight with COVID is going about as well as the U.S., right? Yeah, I'd say we're I'd say we're on similar trajectories. Yeah, All right. Well, before we <laughs> our curve is flat. Is yours <laughs> flat at zero? Yeah. Um, uh, let's hop right yeah. in. Yeah. Um, if we want to talk about COVID, we can just talk about COVID because this article, this issue has a couple COVID articles in it. Um, uh, and as you might expect, COVID articles that were accepted back in March uh, have not aged as potentially well as uh, you know the pandemic has aged. Uh, but the, the first one it's, uh, accepted in here was called Cohort of 4,404 Persons Under Investigation for COVID-19 in a New York Hospital and Predictors of ICU Care and Ventilation. The lead author here was Adam Singer, and he is at the State University of New York, Stony Brook. And, uh, you know, it's just, it just an eternity ago that we had the first hints of a novel coronavirus originating in China at the beginning of the year. And really the first hints back almost a year from now, like uh, back in December and November, which, unfortunately, putting this article in the October print issue is, is almost a historical curiosity at this point. Um, they discuss persons under investigation for COVID-19, in which, you know, 400, 404 patients were suspected of COVID, but then they could actually only test 3,369 of them, um, and then only 2,897 of whom had test results available at the time of publication. Suffering from those horrible testing shortages and horrible delays we all felt so acutely at the time. I mean, I remember the first days of the pandemic in Oregon where we could do 50 tests a day and they had to be sent to the state lab where you would get test results back in three to five days um, because they would run two swabs at the same time to be 100% certain. Um, so they had capacity for 100 tests, but they only could do 50 patients. Um, and so these are the delays that we all dealt with. Um, and so persons under investigation used to be an actual thing, uh, way more so than it used to be. And it's so you can, you can, this is almost just, it's almost like post-traumatic stress to read this article <laughs> rather than, you know, as a historical curiosity. Um, and, you know, they saw that, you know, 26% of patients required mechanical ventilation after admission at that time. Because, again, the way we treated COVID back in the day was more aggressive with mechanical ventilation as opposed to really trying to use non-invasive ventilation as much as possible, reflecting the lack of treatment options and other things going on. And what was novel back then, um, when this article was, again, you know, electronically published, documenting the symptoms and lab values of those with COVID, talking about the lymphopenia, uh, describing this novel respiratory illness that we can now all diagnose in our sleep. Um, it makes this article, again, a little bit of a historical curiosity. Um, but then these, <laughs> the best part is these authors close with the point that patients with COVID-19 can present a substantial healthcare burden, including significant strain on ICU space. Sadly, that has borne out to be very true. So, uh, reading this article, uh, well, like I said, uh, kind of a blast from the past, um, as likely this next article is as well. Yeah. I, so at first, uh, this is, you know, published out of my alma mater at Stony Brook where I did my fellowship. So Adam Singer and Mark Henry are 
good friends and and Peter Vicelio as well. We're all good friends and mentors of mine. Um, I, I agree. It is a blast from the past, but you know, this is, this is kind of how things had to be published, right? Like early on, we had to just document what happened to these patients when they came into the hospital. And yes, by the time it makes it into print, um, it does seem like something that's fairly obvious to all of us who've experienced, uh, these events. Um, and we all would kind of like more useful predictors or, or measurements that we can help prognosticate, which I think we're still missing. Um, but I think this is a necessary part of documenting the COVID illness. And, you know, Adam Singer and all did it quite well. Um, I would have liked to see stuff like, you know, like, how do we decide which patients need admission? How do we decide which patients go on to the ICU? Um, and unfortunately, there's not much of that in this article. Um, but those kind of prognostic factors are much needed, especially at this point um, as we face our third surge um, going on the winter of 2020. Fabio says it's still the first wave. <laughs> it's still technically the first wave. It's just Very such a true. big country. It kind of swash, splashes around a little bit, the first wave coming through. Yeah. Um, Belgium. Now the Belgium's having a second wave. Sure. So, yeah, I, I mean, all in all, I think they did a fairly good job of documenting what happens um, when you read this article. And if you've taken care of these patients, this is all fairly familiar to you. Um, but I think, all, it, again, is a necessary part of documenting this disease process. Of course. And when this was initially you know, electronically published, this is you know really good detailed information that we could disseminate widely as quickly as possible. So um, it, you know, the fact that it just takes that long to get into print is just you know why we do the other kind of knowledge translation activities that we do. Yeah, I mean, the stuff I wonder, like it's a big data set. Like, you know, what I want to know is like, you know, how many patients that have a normal pulse ox in the ED, but when you walk them and they desaturate, how many of them go on to, to need oxygen, mechanical ventilation, ICU stays, so on and so forth. Like the, the kind of mm -hmm. stuff that we could we could then start risk stratifying these patients from the ED, determining who can go home and who can't. Because right now we're kind of making it up. No, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of thing that you that's kind of data point that you have to do sort of design prospectively, knowing what we now know about how this disease seems to progress in people, um, and wondering those sorts of things. That's not going to get captured in electronic health record unless you've explicitly designed a data point to go prospectively collect uh, ambulatory oxygen desaturation right. yeah. um, as a prognostic feature for developing some sort of rule. So, you know, hopefully somebody's already working on that somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we move on? Uh, our next article, staying on the topic of COVID, is the accuracy of emergency department clinical findings for the diagnosis of coronavirus disease in 2019. And the lead author is Oliver Peroni. So these authors sought to collect and describe medical history and clinical findings of patients who presented to the ED with suspected COVID-19 and to assess these clinical parameters, um, as well as comparing clinical gestalt and lung ultrasound to accurately identify COVID-19. Uh, it was a prospective study, um, and they enrolled a cohort of adult patients who were suspected having COVID um, and were being tested for COVID with a PCR test. Um, they collected physical examination, chest radiograph, and lung ultrasound findings. Following the examination by the treating clinician, they were asked to predict the probability of COVID, um, and they did so with the odds of having COVID low, medium, or high. Um, overall, they included 391 patients. 57.6 of them had a positive test result for COVID. Among the patients with confirmed COVID, about 78% reported a fever, 70% reported a cough. The median temperature was 37.6, and 23.6 reported GI symptoms. 
when long ultrasound was performed, bilateral B lines were present in 36 patients or 76% of the of the patients which a long ultrasound was done. Unfortunately, it was only done on a total of 48 of the 391 patients. When you ask the physicians what they thought, um, they were fairly good at predicting when they thought the patients had a low probability of having COVID only 19% of them had COVID. Um, when they thought the, the patients had a high probability of having COVID, 84% of them had COVID. When they had a moderate risk or they weren't sure, about 50% had COVID and 50% didn't. So all in all, reasonably good diagnostic accuracy, but diagnostic accuracy when using unstructured judgment. Table four, uh, for those who want to read, has really good outlines of all the sensitivity, specificities, and likelihood ratios for the individual symptoms and lung ultrasound and checks x-ray findings. You can see none of them are really good enough to use in isolation. Um, they tried to come up with a few combinations that had a high prediction, and what they found is patient reported anosmia. Is that how you said? Anosmia? Anosmia? Anosmia. Anosmia. Patient reported anosmia and the presence of bilateral B lines, an interesting combination, uh, had the highest positive <laughs> likelihood ratio of 7.58. Um, and then on the opposite side, the absence of, of a high clinical probability determined by the emergency physician and absence of B lines had the best negative likelihood ratio of 0.33. But again, none of these are exactly good enough to determine diagnostic certainty. Um, there's a nice table, table E1 in the uh, supplementary appendix. It illustrates how long ultrasound would shift the likelihood of a patient having COVID. So with a pretest probability of 5%, uh, absence of long ultrasound will get you down to about 1.3%. So if a patient has a very low risk of having COVID, then a lung ultrasound will get them down even lower. Um, on the other hand, with a pretest probability of 75%, the presence of B lines will bring you up to 95.5%. So you could see even lung ultrasound, which probably performed the best out of all these things, really didn't shift your post-test probability that much that would change your decision-making. If you were 75% sure that the patient had COVID, you would probably treat them as COVID. Bringing them up to 95% really wouldn't change your, your, your treatment that much. Um, so all in all, I think it's a well-done study. The biggest limitation is the gold standard that was used is PCR testing, which we know is fairly insensitive, meaning they likely missed some cases that were COVID positive and treated them as COVID negative. That being said, I think this study illustrates what most of us who have taken care of COVID patients observed. It's present his presentation can vary from patient to patient, both in symptoms and severity. No single finding is good enough to rule in disease, but the more you see this disease, the easier it is to kind of look at it, a patient and say, you likely had COVID. Um, but like everything in EM, we have to practice with uncertainty and we have to dispo patients accordingly and make sure they have good return precaution. Yeah. I mean, after having seen enough COVID patients, you know, who probably has COVID. It's really obvious when they have COVID. And then you have all these people with the variable presentations, especially in the younger people, and they all need they all need some sort of objective testing. You can't just say, oh, you probably don't have COVID, because a lot of these people sadly do, um, and they're at risk for obviously continuing its spread. I, you know, I, I think the hardest thing to incorporate in your practice here is the beelines on long ultrasonography, certainly in the early days of COVID, and then certainly many practice settings. We try to stay as far away from these patients as possible. Um, so getting uh, too close and personal with the lung ultrasound 
uh, tends to be a little bit more contact than some people like to make. Uh, so that might be the hardest thing to translate in your practice. Um, and certainly uh, doing a really high quality ultrasound and interpreting beelines on ultrasound, it's not in everybody's wheelhouse. Um, so I'm not sure how that one actually translates to clinical practice yeah. uh, widespread in the United States. And this is probably sacrilege uh, as, a, as someone who uses ultrasound. I'm not sure how much it really helps you. You know, like, as you said, pretty much you become comfortable with diagnosing COVID. And in its mildest form, it prevents very differently, right? And there can be a lot of variability. But a lot of that, these patients don't need to come in the hospital. What the big important thing is they need to isolate. And whether their test is positive or negative, you're still going to tell them to isolate until their symptoms resolve. In its more severe form, it is exquisitely consistent from patient to patient. And you already know they have COVID at that point, given the symptomology. The question is, does lung ultrasound help you prognosticate who's going to be better or worse? And I'm not really sure it does. I think, uh, at least from my perspective, the biggest prognostic sign is oxygen requirements and how much oxygen they need and their work of breathing. Um, and those are both is clinically looking at a patient and making a call. No, and it's um, directly correlated, I'm sure, with the amount of congestion you can actually identify on ultrasound. I mean, oxygenation status versus, you know, congestion on ultrasound. Very, very high association between those two findings. Uh, Maybe, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe <laughs> I think it, I think it depends on, on COVID as the disease. If you do look at their CT findings, you're right. Early COVID, most of the disease is, is peripheral. So you should be able to pick most of it up on ultrasound. Is it a direct correlation between ultrasound and oxygenation? I mean, at least what we're seeing with the CT data that there, the, the correlation between CT findings and P to F ratios is not as consistent as we'd like it to be. So there is hmm. some evidence that suggests maybe ultrasound will be the same thing. Hmm. And then of course, well. it doesn't really matter if ultrasound <laughs> predicts it, it matters if it predicts it, if it adds anything to your clinical judgment, right? Which is, I think, fairly predictable in COVID patients. Um, and then your clinical judgment only matters to the extent it dictates therapies that are beneficial right. yeah. <laughs> and change outcomes, which uh, we're also still struggling to cope with. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, one area I can see maybe... Remdesivir. <laughs> one area I could see it, it, it could be helpful, much like what we talked about last time and who can you send home? Like maybe... maybe Long ultrasound would help predict patients that do you do send home and then get into trouble. Um, again, that would have to be looked at, but those are some potential areas where maybe it'll help. Yeah, but would you still not send them home, or would you give them a dose of dexamethasone instead? Or I don't know. I don't That's know. Question. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot. More All to right. Do. I'd say uh, moving on from COVID, although we're not actually moving on from COVID in our lives, we're moving on from COVID in the podcast. And so this next article is the influence of Medicare for all on reimbursement for emergency care, treat and release visits. The lead author here is Alexander Pomerantz, and they are at the Harvard Medical School. For just about as long as I've been practicing, we've also been talking about how the status quo in the U.S. healthcare system is untenable or unsustainable. Fee-for-service care is frequently low value and certainly leads to disparities in health outcomes based on socioeconomic status. But, you know, one of the concerns with any changes in the payment structure of a system is whether the finances work, whether the changing coverage scheme deprives systems of care of adequate reimbursement, which affects both hospitals and individual practicing physicians. So these authors looked at that, and since this is an emergency medicine journal, they looked at it for the emergency department. 
They used the Medical Expenditure Panel Survey to determine payments and out-of-pocket expenditures. And then the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, NAMS, HAS, whatever it is, to estimate the types of ED visits by payer type. They simulated two models, um, one in which the current sort of emergency department uh, landscape was uh, changed to one in which all ED visits were covered by so-called Medicare for All, uh, where all ED visits are reimbursed reflecting Medicare rates, and then a hybrid where Medicaid still exists and was preserved as is, plus Medicaid was expanded to cover all previous uninsured visits in addition to otherwise replacing commercial insurance with Medicare for all. Basically, without getting into too much detail, the changes are a wash. Uh, total emergency, uh, sorry. <clears throat> Basically, without getting into too much detail, the changes are pretty much a wash. Total estimated payments for emergency department visits, uh, roughly $85 billion annually right now. Under Medicare for all, total payments increased basically because increases in reimbursement for previous Medicaid visits and increases in reimbursement for self-pay visits outweighed the decreased reimbursement from commercial insurance visits. Then the hybrid Medicare-Medicaid analysis showed a small decrease in reimbursement of similar magnitude because the preserved Medicaid reimbursements are lower. Uh, but the differences aren't huge. Uh, in both, individual out-of-pocket costs were much lower, as commercial insurance typically involves a higher per-visit cost-sharing with patients. But, because all these are estimates based on these historical reimbursement schedules, any changes in reimbursement structure by the federal government would have profound effect and could dramatically alter the financial landscape based on any sort of rule changes should a final implementation of Medicare for all go into effect. So, yes, it's going to be about the same. Uh, unless it's entirely different. <laughs> and this article can't predict what's actually going to happen when they do the final implementation of a so-called Medicare for all. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you know, like all these articles, it's all based on the assumptions that the authors take. These are very smart authors, and they did a really good job. I believe their assumptions more than I believe my own. Uh, but like you said, the, the flaw in this is, is these assumptions could change dramatically. That being said, you know, like it's not surprising that the emergency department payments don't really change much. You know, the the big dollar or the big money makers in healthcare is not the emergency department. I think, you know, areas that you would see much larger changes in in, in payment um, or some of the, the, the larger or more uh, lucrative areas of medicine, like, you know, big money making surgeries or procedure lists, so on and so forth. Um, and so kind of running these numbers with them in my, mind, you'd probably see much different results. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's just it's all about the assumptions it's based upon. Yeah. And, you know, looking at the tea leaves and trying to figure out, I mean, this, the point of this article is trying to reassure us that we're going to be financially whole if we change the payment structure and you know, the entire financial Medicare reimbursement landscape changes. And in some ways, we're going to be disadvantaged. And in some ways, we'll be advantaged. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's, I mean, this is one very important thing for hospitals and individuals. But, I, I, you know, I think the there's a, there's a whole lot more going on in this, this picture, too. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, once you change... A debate that we certainly can't get into. <laughs> no, no, no. But, the scope of one podcast. But once you change a, a medical system that's built on profit to one that's not built on profit, we you know, you, you shouldn't be surprised that you're not making as much of a profit as a whole, right? Um, yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. 
you know, because emergency medicine is, 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 you know, never been so much about a profit as more about, you know, um, seeing the, the needs of society. Um, it's obvious that, or it's not surprising that, um, we don't see a big change in our reimbursement, um, when, when a theoretical, uh, Medicare for all system is agreed. Cool. All right. Should we move on? Please do. Our next article, Homeless Shelter Entry in the Year After Emergency Department Visit, results from the linked data analysis, and the lead author is Kelly Duran. So the social determinants of health are so vitally important to patients' health and well-being, and they are so often overlooked in the emergency department as we often focus on the more immediate reasons for the patient presenting to the ED. But whether a patient becomes homeless will very often be far more impactful on their health than any of the things you do for them during their ED visit. So these authors sought to quantify the risk of homelessness in the year following an ED visit. They performed a prospective cohort study of patients presenting to an urban public teaching hospital and associated urgent care centers. ED patients completed a baseline survey and were followed prospectively from shelter entry using New York City administrative data. Patients were eligible if they were age 18 or older and spoke English or Spanish. They were ineligible if they were medically unstable or in physical distress, were too intoxicated to participate, were in psychological distress, were in police or prison custody, lived outside New York City, or had already participated. The authors used a New York City Department of Homeless Service CARES database, which included data on shelters for more than 70,000 adults in New York City, and it captured approximately 90% of shelter use in New York City. Approximately 87% of the patients they saw had exact matches in the CARES database. The authors approached over 6,000 patients, of whom about 3,000 were eligible and about 2,300 agreed to participate. Among the patients who were not currently homeless as when they were seen in the ED, about 5% entered a homeless shelter in the following year. Most of this was concentrated about 30 days after an ED visit, but it kind of over the whole year, there's about a 5% risk of homelessness. Now, that's a pretty big number. Now, there's obviously some selection bias in this study, given who they excluded, though I would argue the populations that were excluded from the study were probably at higher risk of homelessness in the next following year than the patients who were seen. So the number might actually be higher than what that 5%. And so this is a big deal. The question is, is there something we could do about it? Is this a modifiable risk factor that we can make an impact in from the ED? Or is this a result of or are the same social factors that brought them to the ED going to affect whether the patient becomes homeless or not? Um, and obviously, we would need more data to that and doing some kind of interventional studies. But certainly, 5% is a sobering number. Yeah. Um, but I also think, yeah, so... This is a really relevant study if you operate an urban emergency department that you can actually potentially use this as a launching board like these authors kind of propose that you could, you know, this is an opportunity for you to intervene. The vast majority of emergency departments are not urban EDs located next door to a homeless shelter like this one is. So uh, the generalizability of this information uh, and you know, are you going to end up, you know, whatever research that comes out of this on the next step going to be applicable to your practice? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but for certain certain locations, this is going to be really important to know um, and really important to consider designing additional resources uh, in your emergency department to help address this problem if possible. Yeah. And that's another, that's, a, that's the other next step. I mean, like you said, that's the next important step is now that you've identified a problem, can you actually design an intervention that's high value for these patients? 
yeah. there's systemic problems in that that they not necessarily address in the emergency department. Sure. Yeah. And you know, how how many resources do you have to apply to this, and is it enough to truly make a difference? Because this is probably far more complicated than than you know simply uh, get, having social work, you know, be in touch with the patient and see if they can give them assistance, right? There's probably a lot more you have to do here. More than just a bus ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so moving right along, uh, there's another article in this issue called anticoagulant reversal strategies in the emergency department setting recommendations of a multidisciplinary expert panel. Lead author here is Christopher Bao, and they are at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, oral anticoagulants have a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> First, to familiarize ourselves with the new agents, the and then the factor 10A inhibitors, and now they're antidotes. Adiricizumab, prothrombin concentrate complexes, and coagulation factor 10A recombinant inactivated, also commonly and incorrectly referred to as andexanet alpha. This article describes the output of an expert group convened using funds provided to ASIP by Behringer Ingelheim, makers of Bigotram and Idaricizumab, and Portola Pharmaceuticals, makers of coagulation factor 10A recombinant inactivated. Overall, this is a top-level review of the various anticoagulants, followed by their panel recommendations of Tier 1 and Tier 2 reversal agents. Some of these are straightforward and historical, such as fresh frozen plasma for warfarin and protamine for the heparinoids. On the only slightly more exotic end, prothrombin concentrate complexes are recommended for some cases of warfarin-related bleeding and fondaparinu. Well, didericizumab is the only apparently viable option for dibigatran, despite the paucity of evidence. The more controversial recommendations come in addressing reversal of the direct factor 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, apixaban, edoxaban, and vitrixaban. This controversy is addressed in the editorial by Claire Atzema, noting, primarily, the Tier 1 recommendation for use of coagulation factor 10A recombinant inactivated, which is not consistent with previously published guidelines from the American Heart Association, Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines, and European Society of Cardiology. She critiques, primarily, the process for which these recommendations were created, emphasizing that these recommendations narrowly reflect the preferences and expert opinion of those involved rather than a rigorous systematic review of the evidence. On the whole, then, unfortunately, there's not much of a takeaway from this work, since the agents for which ED physicians will most commonly encounter, the bigotran and direct thrombin inhibitors, are the ones with the least reliable recommendations. As Claire states, at least, there are ongoing studies enrolling uh, patients for a comparison between prothrombin concentrate complexes and coagulation factor 10A recombinant inactivated to better illuminate the value and clinical utility of yeah, I mean, I think that says it all. There really isn't much data to, to make a decision. And so, you know, these recommendations are, are mostly based on physiological reasoning, which time after time is, is proven to lead us astray about as often as it points us in the right direction. Um, I think these studies are important coming up. I would, I'd like to see them with adericizumab as well, because, you know, I don't think the data for adericizumab to reversal of the Dabigatran is actually any better uh, than the reversal agents for the the, the 10A uh, inhibitors. 
Yes, I think the you know, single arm observational study yeah. supporting its use. Uh, would they have stopped bleeding their own? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've definitely seen WHO trend that doesn't stop bleeding. Sure. Um, so I, again, I, I think it'd be useful just to risk gratify patients for the use of idericizumab or the need for idericizumab, if anything, if possible, uh, and just to avoid using overuse, um, which I think, sure, is almost certain is a, a problem out there with people with a, you know, minor self-limited bleeding getting idericizumab. Yeah. Somehow, somehow the FDA uh, missed the idericizumab paper. Um, but uh, noticed the, the faults of the, the 10A inhibitor reversal agents. Mm -hmm. All right. All right, moving on. All right. Uh, so intravenous cetrazazine, is that what it is? Cetirazine. Intravenous cetirazine versus intravenous diphenhydramine for the treatment of acute urticaria, a phase three randomized control non-inferiority trial. And the lead author is Benjamin Abella. So this was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized phase three clinical trial um, looking at the comparative effects of cetirazine versus diphenhydramine for um, uticaria and itching them. And the study was conducted at 19 sites in the United States and Canada. Patients were considered for enrollment if they presented with acute uticaria to either emergency departments or urgent care centers. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive a single dose of cetirazine, 10 milligrams, or diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams. Additional medications like epinephrine and corticosteroids were allowed as rescue drugs if deemed necessary by the investigator, but the authors, but it was encouraged to give rescue drugs only if necessary. Of the 268 screen patients, a total of 262 were randomized to one of the two groups, 135 in the diphenhydramine group and 127 in the cetirazine. The mean change from baseline pruritus severity score was 1.6 for the cetirazine group and 1.5 for the diphenhydramine group. So no real difference between the two groups, and um, the trial did meet its mark for non-inferiority. Patients in the intra intravenous cetirazine group required less rescue drugs than the patients in the diphenhydramine group. And mean sedation scores also seem to increase from baseline more in the diphenhydramine group than in the cetirazine group. 23 patients, or 8.8%, experienced at least one adverse event, including 13.3% in the diphenhydramine group and 3.9% in the cetirazine group. All of these were fairly minor, most commonly dizziness and nausea. So, I mean, I think this is a fairly well done, though small study, um, but it does support the previous literature we have. We've, I think we've done one other study like this in annals looking at one of the second generation antihistamines versus diphenhydramine, showing similar results that efficacy-wise they seem quite similar. Maybe the newer uh, second generation uh, medications are slightly better, and certainly they lead less side effects and less drowsiness. Yeah, I mean, the question here is do you... Does it matter? Uh, the station score changes are really small. I mean, it's a one through three sort of uh, you know scale. Like how how drowsy do you feel? And most patients were uh, only a little bit drowsy to start with, and they stayed only a little bit drowsy regardless of what they got. Um, so it's not like Benadryl knocks people out. Sorry, diphenhydramine doesn't like knock people out. Um, and the question is, do you use intravenous diphenhydramine or do you use intravenous cystirazine, which is three hundred dollars a dose um, sure. for that small difference in advantage? 
Um, the only, I thought the most interesting thing that I saw here was the rebound phenomena, um, the repeat ED visits. So if you're looking for like a cost effectiveness, you're saying, oh, well, I could give cetirazine, uh, maybe $300 a dose now, but you know, the percentage of people who came back within uh, 24 hours, uh, you know, the difference there um, would end up paying for it in the end. Uh, well, you can just give them IV. Uh, diphenhydramine and then give them some PO cetirazine, <laughs> you know, for pennies on the, uh, and then or peroratidine or any of the competitors, right. you know, orally to get that prolonged effect as well. Uh, so I don't think that argument holds much water. Uh, I just don't think there's that much of a downside to diphenhydramine where you need to avoid it, except like where they talk about the elderly and the fears sort of like you know, drugs to avoid list. Um, so that's, that's, if there's going to be an advantage, it's going to be preventing some elderly person from becoming delirious. Um, by getting uh, diphenhydramine, um, whereas I think the rest of the most of us are, are fine getting a little bit of diphenhydramine. Agreed. All right. We're agreed then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Moving on to uh, yeah, another different topic. Um, so this one is uh, early prediction of acute kidney injury in the emergency department with machine learning methods applied to electronic health record data. Uh, the lead author here is Diego Martinez, and they are with Johns Hopkins University. The promise of machine learning for telling the future using a mysterious black box. Data goes in, <laughs> magic happens, and a prediction emerges. No one knows how it works. Mysterious. No one knows how it works. <laughs> Don't look you behind know. the curtain. Machine learning statisticians. <laughs> yeah, you pay no attention. Uh, to the machine behind the curtain. Uh, but, you know, their machine learning techniques are well validated and they're not, they're not magical. Um, and there's, there's, this, there's known probabilities and supervised, unsupervised learning, all sorts of manner of things. Uh, so, uh, but there are increasing and millions and zillions of, you know, people basically uh, applying these techniques for prediction to basically every possible problem for which data exist. The problem that these people are asking, which patients in the emergency department will ultimately develop an acute kidney injury during their hospitalization. These authors say this is an important question because if identified as at risk earlier, various nephrotoxic agents might be avoided. Uh, uh, patients, uh, standard avoid nephrotoxic agents. <laughs> <laughs> and dialysis might be forestalled. Don't you, don't you love the kidney? Don't, don't, you, don't you see the effects of this in the ICU? That people have failed to avoid the nephrotoxic medications and suddenly on CRT? Uh, I just love how they think uh, we have a choice. Yeah, like, <laughs> we're, we're always trying to avoid nephrotoxic agents. It's just sometimes we have to give nephrotoxic agents like gentamicin <laughs> we use gentamicin for everybody down here it's pretty funny uh i mean it's great it's a great drug i love it uh it really kills stuff uh, <laughs> including your but kidney. anyway so these aside <laughs> these authors so they apply these generalizable machine learning techniques their own specific way uh, and the real innovation that the difference about how they use it is how they clean up the data and prepare their data using nine hundred thousand. sorry <laughs> using 91,258 emergency department visits to three different emergency departments to create their models. And they try to predict using this initial data, stage one or stage two acute kidney injury at 24, 48, and 72 hours from arrival. And as you might expect, very similar to most models, they are partially successful. By somewhere between an hour and a half and two and a half hours into the emergency department visit, according to their, you know, retros their look at their data, the model is able to sort of gather enough data to make a prediction whose maximum performance reaches a sensitivity of 0 0.72. 
and a specificity of 0 0.73, which kind of almost sounds good until you really realize that only a few percent of all emergency departments ultimately develop subsequent acute kidney injury, meaning the poor specificity generates way too many false positives to be clinically useful, and then the sensitivity means you still miss a substantial portion of cases. So it's a reasonable approach to an important problem, but clearly we're just not there yet. And unfortunately, it's also a little opaque whether the problem, where the problem lies. Is it their foundational data sets or something the way that they do to prepare their data for their classification model? I mean, I, I generally still have high hopes for these sorts of approaches to predictive tools, but I, I still find it really hard to cite examples where they've truly delivered on their promise. Not only that, what are you going to do about it if you could predict it? Um, you know, never toxic agents. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I, like you know, the question is how much of this kidney injury is actually something you can change? Like, how much of it is 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 modifiable um, for your actions in the ED and your and your hospital stay? Um, and I would predict not much. Um, as, as I said earlier, you know, avoid nephrotoxic agents. We all laugh at that because it's stated on every single consult to a nephrologist. Um, but of course, we all would like to avoid nephrotoxic agents. If we knew someone was at risk for kidney injury earlier in the stay, would we change our practice? giving them different antibiotics uh, or, or something like that. And, and, and then the next question is, is that beneficial or harmful? If you're modifying your antibiotics, are you picking ones that are less optimal for the disease they have? Um, and so will that benefit or harm outcomes? I don't know. My, my theory is the, the, you know, the, the largest effect on kidney injury is likely the disease process that's causing the kidney injury. If you can get control of that, you'd probably have better outcomes um, than any other modifiable risk factors. Yes. So I think uh, really the best value out of this is looking at their, is, is trying to look at their methods um, and looking at you know, the machine learning approach and familiarizing yourself with the, these sorts of predictive models and classification schemes. Uh, and less so that the, the output is something usable because it's clearly not. Um, and if it was, we'd probably all be talking about it and using it already. Yeah. Um, and it would be plugging into our electronic health records yeah. or you know, it would be you know, something about that. But uh, it, that, it, it's never going to it's never going to progress beyond this point, I don't think, um, because again, to, to, to it, even to put it into your electronic health record as an alert, I still, again, you need that, that implementation science step to make sure that this is not going to cause unintended consequences. Yeah. First of all, if I have one more alert that pops up in my <laughs> electronic <laughs> health record, um, but like, as you said, like how long, how many years now have we been like, you know, hoping for the saviors of the, of these, you know, these black boxes that, the, you know, the computers are going to save us so no longer are we going to need doctors, they'll be able to predict everything. And um, as of yet, they have yet to predict much in medicine, right? I mean, most of the time, the results come out similar to this, where they have mediocre findings, um, whose clinical um, utility is, is uncertain. Yeah, and that's the I think that's the that's the difficulty with these things is it's a little hard to tell exactly whether it's the tech the predictive techniques that are the problem, and the, you know the black box is you know, is the black box to blame, and then are these classification schemes just inherently you know, the wrong way of approaching these problems, or is this too hard of a clinical problem, or is do we just have the wrong data sets? I think we just have the wrong data sets to predict to make these models work. Either it's not not large enough with enough sort of granularity so that the individual patient heterogeneity kind of works itself through into the model, and that you you find the patients who are similar enough, and there's enough of them and enough statistical power to really localize the individual. Um, 
But then again, if you have to have that kind of really beautiful data, there's nobody can implement that in their workflow because you don't get beautiful data out of the electronic health record. So that, this is really reflects how bad the data is in the electronic health record for doing these prediction models, unfortunately. Um, so I think it's, I think it's just a matter of the, we just don't, the clinical data that we spit out and we use in these predictive models on a daily basis just isn't good enough to be useful for the most, for most applications. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just close by saying, I'm sure the, the machine learning gurus are cringing that we just keep calling it the black box. <laughs> <laughs> the computer taking over. <laughs> um, so if, if there no one knows how it works. If there are any uh, machine learning gurus that are listening to this, we apologize. All right. And nephrologists. Avoid All right. All right. Why don't we move on? Finishing up. All right. Our yep, yep. final article. They're doing their job. Women's acceptance of emergency department contraception counseling. And the lead author is Martina Codwell. So there's data that women of childbearing age presenting to the ED are at heightened risk of unplanned pregnancy than the general public. So these authors explore the acceptance of ED-based contraceptive counseling as it might be the opportune area to, to install this. The authors screened a convenient sample of reproductive age females presenting to a single urban emergency department. They enrolled females aged 15 to 44 with non, a non-pregnant diagnosis who self-identified as black, Latina, or white, and who were currently using birth control and were not planning on becoming pregnant. Patients participated in a semi-structured interview. The interviewers were blinded to all participant data. The interviewers were blinded to all participants' data. The authors interviewed a total of 31 women. Although only 39% of the interviewees answered yes to the question, are you interested in starting or changing your birth control method in the next 12 months, 81% of the participants were accepting of ED contraception counseling. Five themes emerged, three supporting ED-based counseling and two which did not. The three that were supporting were perspective that contraceptive counseling was within an ED provider's clinical domain, and the eating setting was convenient and helped address women's unmet contraceptive needs. However, the two themes that argued against doing contraceptive counseling in the ED was the fact that this is a, a sensitive topic and the ED environment is not always conducive of having such sensitive discussions while in a busy emergency department. So there's a load of interesting things that come up in these interviews, and I, I would urge everyone to read them for themselves. For example, a number of adolescent patients were unaware of any forms of contraceptive, and uh, these interviews helped educate some of the patients. And many of these women had minimal access to healthcare outside the ED. Um, and so obviously the ED would be a place they would go to if, if it was available. Um, other barriers of note were inability to afford contraception and the lack of insurance. All in all, this was a really interesting read, and it brings up some very compelling issues. Obviously, given the nature of the study, it has some pretty big limitations. Um, while it appears counseling may be beneficial, may be a beneficial practice in the ED, without doing a more pragmatic study, it's unclear how it would affect outcomes. For example, would, would this really actually change patients' um, care and practice? How many of these patients under, who undergo counseling would actually continue to take their contraception after being seen in the ED, or are the barriers that prevent them from taking it in the first place still there with or without their ED visit? Um, in the end, I think this may represent more of our broken primary care system and how, once again, we in the ED are tasked to pick up these failures. Yeah, you hit it. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I think that's the, this is great, great early stage sort of research, the qualitative aspect, um, you know, what are the barriers here? Uh, and then trying to design an intervention uh, and then testing to see if it's, you know, you has an effect on your final outcomes. And then also sort of scoping out the, uh, you know, the value of the intervention and exactly how much the resource utilization cost might be. And then determining, you know, is that money well spent in the emergency department or is there a different way to spend that money to do the intervention? Uh, again, yeah, so great first step. Uh, more steps to come to see if uh, this ends up being something where we end up being the most appropriate place to provide this sort of counseling and, uh, you know, this sort of intervention. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like time after time, we see primary care. We see ideas that are what we think of as traditionally as primary care move to the emergency department. That's partly because of the lack of a primary care system we have in uh, the United States. Um, and some of them work out pretty good and other ones fail miserably. And so you don't really know until you actually try to see how this is going to go. That just about wraps it up. Yeah, I think that's it for this month. As always, with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach us at annalsaudio at asap.org. Otherwise, until ne next month, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. Mm -hmm.